It was a very cruel scene. Executed in an unusual Coven. Hello, my little jelly donuts. Welcome to Cruel and Unusual, the podcast. I'm Tori. I'm Katie. And we are officially in November. It's November 1. <sighs> Only 364 days until spooky season again. <laughs> it's always spooky. Is it's it? always Halloween in my soul. I thought you were going to say in my heart. <laughs> so I feel like we had a pretty damn good spooky season. I feel like it was great. We had a lot of Patreon interaction. We did one audio, one extra audio every Friday all of October, Mm -hmm. except for the last one. And that's because I fucked it up. (laughs) But it's okay. It's coming soon. And that's going to be for everybody, Mm -hmm. not just Patreon members. Yeah, because everyone submitted questions for our Q&A. So we just thought it only fitting for everyone to be able to hear it. You want to hear the answers to your burning questions. So if you want to know what color my underwear are, you're going to find out. (laughs) Tune in. (laughs) I'm not wearing any. (laughs) It's gross. So this is a listener-centered episode. Mm -hmm. And for everybody that's not a patreon if you okay we put our bloopers up on patreon every week we accompany our our latest episode with the bloopers from that episode last time we did a listener sent <laughs> oh i'm fucking no. it up last time we did a listener centered episode in the bloopers you can hear me say just like this this is a listener scented episode <laughs> And I just accepted it. I didn't even just, catch it. I don't think you even did either I don't for a think, second. No, for a hot I didn't second, know. It was, it was all, that was all we needed. No. It's just, we just needed so. to know that it was listener-scented. Listener-scented. you smell like, yeah. that is what it smelled like. So I've decided, I haven't told you yet, but I've decided that every time we do a listener-centered episode, we're just going to, it's going to be a listener-scented episode because it's, it's you, easier to say. You guys, it's listener-scented Listener-scented. I hope you showered. Smells like you. You... I smell like Parmesan cheese. Do you remember? <laughs> Do you remember? Really quick, can I clarify yes, why? You can. I got Go new deodorant that is naturally scented. Juniper berry. What is the brand? Tell the listeners. Loom. 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 It's like lotion deodorant. Like L-O-O-M? L-U-M-E. L-U-M-E. Okay. Obviously, this isn't sponsored because it fucking stinks. You're going to want to steer clear, people. <laughs> it's supposed to be juniper berry and it smells like fucking gym socks and Parmesan cheese. <laughs> So, yeah. Yeah, guys. I'm glad that it, this one is listener-scented because she smells like shit. I'm not a listener. Okay? So, that's fine. <laughs> I don't really smell it. Um, do you want me to speak on my headline? Speak on your headline, okay. please. Let me pull it up for you. Okay. My headline is from wait.com. That's W-A-T-E. Wait. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the title is Human Remains Found at Serial Killer's Family Home in Florida. I read this one. You did? Yes. It's a good one. I almost picked it, but I found another. Oh, good. One of these times we are going to have the same headline. Mm -hmm. But that's why I usually ask you, like, does it have to do with this? And you're like, no. No, it's totally different. Okay, good. Okay. Quote. A grisly discovery in Florida on Tuesday may change the course of a decades-old serial killer case. Human remains were found in the yard of a Hernando County house belonging to the family of convicted serial killer William, a.k.a. Billy, Mansfield. 
Neighbors say multiple investigators began showing up at dawn, bringing bulldozers with them to facilitate the sobering task of digging for bodies. The sobering task, you know, truly. Graphic discoveries have been unearthed there before. According to court documents and dozens of detectives, what happened in the Spring Hill home over the years was the stuff of nightmares with details so horrific and so evil, longtime residents admit just talking about the home makes them uneasy. Shit, what the fuck happened there? Mansfield's father and brother both remain in the house, both with lengthy criminal histories. In fact, Billy's brother Gary was arrested on drug charges in the early morning hours Tuesday. That's when the case broke wide open, sources say, with Gary sharing the secret of the past with deputies. Witnesses say as he was being escorted from the home by deputies, he began yelling loudly, demanding immunity on the impending drug charges. Yeah, I'm demanding. You're not really in the position to demand, Gary. No, sure aren't. Ugh. Gary tipped off detectives with a clue that launched the new investigation, yelling that there are bodies all over the property. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. It probably went something like this. There are bodies all over the property! Give me so, immunity! Is he thinking, like, if he's going to rat out who killed these people, I guess then so. I'll then, get less time for the drug charges? Exactly. Okay. Then I won't be going yeah. away for, you know, 20 years for coke. As mm-hmm. a, You know what I mean? Okay. It wouldn't be 20 years. 20 years for coke. <laughs> 20 years <laughs> <Got> for coke. <laughs> Writing that down. Myself. 20 years for <laughs> coke. This property has been tied to murders, rape, and heavy drug use from the occupants inside, including a twice-convicted child molester, according to neighbors. Go fuck, fuck you. yourself. Yep. Prosecutors say Mansfield frequently tortured women he kidnapped inside the home. Mansfield fulfilled this sick and twisted fantasy with his father and brother, presenting them with young women who are bound and gagged but still alive, prosecutors said. Oh, here's a gift. I hate this man. Man. I want to do an episode on him. Yeah. Just to call him out and make him... You know what? Oh, I hate him. I want to make him eat his own shit. That's what just popped into my head. Let's do it. (laughs) The family members sexually assaulted and tortured the victims in the last months of their lives before Billy murdered the women, often dismembering them in the house, court court documents allege. Then, to satisfy his growing obsession, Billy would bury the bodies nearby, admitting years later in court that he wanted them close. Ew. Sick fuck. Sick fuck. I didn't read that part. Sick fuck. Forensic teams were at the home from sunup to sundown on Tuesday and were back again on Wednesday. The newly found remains now have detectives searching for answers. What exactly took place on the secluded property? What happened behind closed doors in the family home of this convicted killer, now serving four life sentences in a California prison? Are there more bodies of victims buried deep in the land surrounding the home? And if so... Who are they? Were they reported missing years ago when the crimes were carried out in the late 1970s? And you guys can read the rest of the article if you want on your own. It's very long, but this man is a sick motherfucker. I wonder how many cases could be solved if they can identify these bodies. Holy shit, the 70s? Yeah. Mm -hmm. God. And he looks like a sick motherfucker, too. I'm looking at a picture of him, and this is what he looks like. Okay. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Bitch. What a little bitch boy. Okay, can you speak on your headline? I have a headline. And you're going to speak yes, on I it. Yes, I do. This is from WBRZ.com. It's titled, Woman Allegedly Impersonated Prosecutor Dropped Charges Against Herself. <laughs> I love that. That's something her. I would do. Look at her, too. 
She's happy as fuck yeah, about she's that. She's proud. She's like, yeah, motherfuckers, <laughs> I'm beating the system. Yeah, I don't think she did, but she tried. She really tried. It clearly. Says, it says, quote, Littleton, New Hampshire. A New Hampshire woman is accused of pretending to be a prosecutor and submitting paperwork, dropping stalking and drug charges against herself, according to an indictment handed down this month. The New Hampshire union leader reports Lisa Landon, 33, was arrested after she allegedly submitted false documents in three separate court cases. Three, oh, three. Okay, three. not one, three. not two, but three. <laughs> Last November and December, under the guise of a prosecutor. In some instances, she even used the electronic court system to file documents. She was fucking doing it. I wonder how she did that. I don't know. I'd love to pick her brain. <laughs> Officials first became suspicious when a state forensic examiner who was scheduled to evaluate Landon's competency for trial noticed that her charges had been dropped and questioned if they should move forward with the evaluation. Oh. So they're almost like, oh, no, she, she's done. We don't they, need to evaluate She really her. almost got through that yeah. whole thing. The indictment also says Landon falsified a decision from a retired New Hampshire Supreme Court judge to waive filing fees in a lawsuit she brought against the Hillsborough County government. Oh. She didn't want to owe money either. She was going to take care of that too. <laughs> just this while girl, I'm at it, honestly. Like, while I'm in here, type, 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 type. <laughs> while I'm in here, we're going to just erase that. She's also accused of filing an order on behalf of a relative to halt guardianship proceedings involving Landon's child. Oh, God. Okay. We're getting a little excessive yeah, here now, Miss London. Yeah. Landon now faces a charge of false personation and six charges of falsifying physical evidence. So she got herself in, in worse shit. Deeper shit. Than she would have been in. Mm. That I don't just know. Goes to, that just goes I mean, to show. She's just so ambitious. She's She <laughs> is an her. overachiever. God, she's Especially with that it. smile. She yeah. She's just like. I'm going to share this. She's, she looks very happy with herself. <laughs> Aww. I mean, whatever. A woman wow. after my own heart. I mean, she she had the fucking guts. Okay, so I have the QOTDW this week. <gasps> Shocker. Mm-hmm, I know. Wow. It's because it was on Twitter. Yeah, I don't go on there. Mm-mm. So Twitter, Angela, our little love, our Patreon, Angela. Hello, my little biscuit ball. <laughs> biscuit ball. She says, QOTDW. I like that she put the W. <laughs> she would. Would you rather know how you died or when you'll die? Ooh. Mm-hmm. How? I would much rather know how. How? I, I don't want to know when. I am. I don't want to know when either. Mm-mm. I mean, it's not like I would really love knowing how. If it's, I mean, right. if it's terrible. But if I had to pick between I, those two, it would yes. definitely be how. One million percent. And uh-huh. I'm going to tweet Angela back right now. Okay. What are you going to say? Answering this Q-O-T-D-W <laughs> Right now. Do two day with the, with the number two and then day. Oh, okay. Two day. Q-O-T-D-W. Two day. She's going to be like, you're a loser. Aren't you guys like writers? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Angela, I hope that answers your question. I think yeah. that that's pretty, like, that's us, you know? She probably already knew what we were going to say before <laughs> she even asked it. Yeah, I don't, um... Because if you know when, you're just, I would be your life is ruined. Down. The life that you have left is ruined mm-hmm. completely. The only plus side is that you would be able to prepare like yeah. your family, your your things, your estate. I'm never going to have a fucking estate. <laughs> True. But 
You know what I mean? Like you could leave my estate get to my children. Ready. You could write farewell letters mm-hmm. and have one cent every day for the rest of my kids' lives. Okay, so I feel like that Q O T D W was fairly quick, and it now was. we can just jump right into the okay. main shit. You ready to dive? I'm okay. Let's dive. Okay, head first or butt first? Butt first always. <laughs> always or belly and just flop oh i got what i'm about to do i have a nice cushion on my belly (laughs) it'll be okay i don't know who um requested this case because all we had on there was the email and the email was not a name so i don't know who it was but you're in our group yeah somewhere so if you want to come forward on thursday and let us know who you were so we can give you cred if you want to let it be known Mm -hmm. let it world We'll say it on the next episode that it was sure. you and it was all your idea. Just let us know. You can either mm-hmm. email us and we'll say the email at the end of the show like we always do. Or if you're in Cruel and Unusual Cold in the group, you can just be like, hey, motherfuckers, mm-hmm. it was me. Give me all the credit. <laughs> all right. This is the Collar Bomb Heist, the Ooh. Erie, Erie, Pennsylvania. Oh. Collar Bomb Heist. You're like, eerie yeah i was thinking (laughs) eerie i mean it is a little eerie but yeah i'm kind of excited to hear about this one i know that we say buckle your seatbelt pretty much every fucking episode but Mm -hmm. like honestly this one gets a little bit bumpy really do we need any trigger warnings i don't think so okay if i'm triggered after this i'm going to be calling your mother send me a nasty email please i beg of you i've got that email on fucking speed mail (laughs) speed mail (laughs) yeah (laughs) So we're in Erie, Pennsylvania, like I said. It's 2.28 p.m. in August of 2003. A man named Brian Wells walks into a PNC bank carrying a shotgun that he's using as a cane. Okay. Now, a little bit of background on Brian, real quick. Brian's job is delivering pizzas for Mamma Mia's Pizzeria. Mamma Mia Pizzeria! Pizzeria in mm-hmm. Erie, okay. Pennsylvania. He's worked there for like 10 years. He's 46 years old. I'm starting to wonder if I know this one or not. So just keep talking. Maybe. So he walks into the bank. He waits in line like to, to get up to the counter. When it's his turn, he hands the teller a note. Mm-hmm. That, in every movie or TV show, when this happens, it really gets my heart pumping. <laughs> Let yeah. me tell you. I, if I was a bank teller, I would just be like, terrified on, every day on edge i couldn't i couldn't do it all the xanax <sighs> all of it so he passes the teller this note and it reads gather employees with access codes to the vault and work fast to fill the bag with two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. you only have 15 minutes then brian lifts up his shirt and shows the employees the homemade collar bomb around his neck so it's hinged like a big um handcuff like mm-hmm. one side of a pair of handcuffs, but mm-hmm. obviously big enough to fit around his neck. Mm-hmm. It's like this janky looking thing. It's got kitchen timers. It's got a combination lock. It's got an electric countdown timer, wires that lead to nothing, and two six-inch pipe bombs. So while Brian's waiting for his bag to be filled with money, he grabs a fucking sucker from the bowl on the counter and just casually pops it into his mouth. A dum-dum. Oh. A dum-dum oh. sucker. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very, um nonchalant yeah brian yeah. is incredibly relaxed yeah he's not chalant at all no <laughs> very un yeah un yeah, very non <laughs> <laughs> 
So as it turns out, the teller isn't able to access the vault in that amount of time. They just couldn't do it. So they fill Brian's bag with $8,702. I'd take that. He didn't see a problem with it. No. He's like, okay. And he left the bank just swinging that bag around and swinging his cane around, like his gun cane, Mm -hmm. swinging it around. One witness said like Charlie Chaplin. Oh. Just happier and shit. So obviously after Brian leaves, the bank employees call 911 and they tell them they've just gotten robbed by a man with a, quote, bomb or something wrapped around his neck. That sounds about right. Yeah. Because with all that shit on it, who yeah. the fuck would know what it was? Right. Exactly. A bomb like, or you something. Know. Fucking kitchen timers. Right. Combination lock. Yeah. Yeah. So about 15 minutes later, state police find Brian outside of his Geo Metro in a nearby parking lot. They're watching him and they see him like looking underneath rocks and stuff. And he eventually lifts up a rock and he finds a note. He takes the note, he gets back into his car and he drives off only to be pulled over a few blocks down the road. As one would. Mm -hmm. They just kind of wanted to see like, what the fuck is this guy doing? So the cops pull him over. They have him come out of the car. They see the bulge around his neck, like under his shirt. And they kind of assume the collar bomb is fake at first, but they have to question him a little bit, like, what the fuck's going on? So he tells them that he was working delivering pizzas when suddenly he was surrounded by a group of black men who forced the collar bomb onto him by gunpoint and told him to rob the bank. Okay. 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 Okay, bri bri. (laughs) But despite the police thinking that, like, maybe the bomb is fake, they still have to take precautions anyway. You know, you can't just assume right. that that's fake and do nothing. You don't get to assume no. when there's a bomb no. next to you. No, an ass out of you and me. So they cuff Brian. They have him sit on the ground, like, cross-legged. They call the bomb squad, and they back away with their guns trained on him. Is he, like, by a car? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think of. I know this one. You might. Yeah. <sighs> I'm not, I'm yeah. gonna, I'm not gonna know till the end. There's yeah, footage okay. of the whole thing. Okay, I think I know so it. So by this point, this fiasco is being broadcasted live on the news. Brian's just kind of sitting there cross-legged, like I said. He says, I don't have a lot of time. But he's not, like, panicking. Yeah. He just, he's like, I'm not lying. Which, in my experience, when someone offers that up, I'm not lying. Right. They're most definitely lying. Right. Like, you don't usually, you don't just fucking say that. Right. Why is that the first thing you think yeah, to say? Because it's a lie. Brian said, it's going to go off. But he, like I said, he was just kind of like, he was getting like a little bit more serious, but he still wasn't like panic. He wasn't was he, freaking out. Was he sucking a sucker? <laughs> I don't know if he still had a sucker in his <laughs> mouth. He had his little dum-dum. But I don't know, like if I was strapped with a bomb that I thought was going to go off, I, I would be, be having a fucking fit. There would be there, multiple shit it, fits ensuing. Yeah. But Brian seems calm until the bomb starts beeping. Oh. Yeah. So it's beeping. You can kind of see Brian trying to like back away, but you can't back away from yourself. He's no. like trying to scoot, you know, on yeah. the ground. Sure. Um, He's really starting to freak out now. It beeps for 30 seconds and then the bomb detonates, ripping a hole in Brian's chest and killing him. The bomb squad arrives three minutes later. Oh, no. Bomb yeah. squad. Now, if we want to kind of analyze Brian's behavior, mm-hmm. why the fuck was he so goddamn nonchalant I, wh- at why? the bank, sucking on a dum-dum and swinging his gun cane around? It's almost like he didn't think it was... Maybe he didn't think it was real? Mm-hmm. 
yeah. until it started beeping because that's when his demeanor changed right 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 right. yeah i don't know and then he's all like i'm not lying you know right i don't know so they start searching brian's car and they find like the weirdest shit let me just tell you okay they find handwritten notes addressed to the bomb hostage which they would assume was brian mm-hmm. and one of them reads something along the lines of you have to rob the bank, get 250 grand, and then follow all of these. Like, there were like complex instructions to get keys and combination codes all over the town. There were maps. There were these like weird ass drawings. There were written threats. They pieced together that it was supposed to be like some sort of scavenger hunt yeah. for Brian to find the combination and keys and everything he needed to get the bomb off of himself. Sure. Who the fuck would go to that yeah. much trouble? Yeah. One of the notes read, There is only one way you can survive, and that is to cooperate completely. This powerful, booby-trapped bomb can be removed only by following our instructions. And then this is in all caps. Act now, think later, or you will die. Hmm. So there's only one way for the authorities to get to the bottom of this shit. They're going to complete the scavenger hunt. Oh, my God. Fun. They're, they're going <laughs> on the scavenger hunt. I love a good scavenger hunt. Same. So, not like this one, but... I'd rather not do that one, but <laughs> if anyone wants to set up, like, a fun one... Yeah. That would be cool. That could be a socially distanced activity. Yeah. So, the first steps after robbing the bank are to, quote, exit the bank with the money and go to the McDonald's restaurant, get out of the car and go to the small sign reading drive through open 24-hour. In the flower bed, by the sign, there is a rock with a note taped to the bottom. It has your next instructions. So that's what Brian was doing when the police were watching him digging right after the, the bank. Digging mm-hmm. in the ground. Looking yeah. at the rocks and shit. Brian found that note and it told him to go up Peach Street to a wooded area a few miles away. There he would find a container with orange tape on it and inside he would find the next set of instructions. Brian didn't get to that clue, obviously. But after all of that, after the bomb went off, after Brian died, the cops find that container at that second location. And inside, there's a note directing them two miles south into a road sign where the next clue would be waiting in a jar in the woods. Oh. Nearby, near the sign. What the f- actual mm-hmm. fuck? Not weird. So the cops go there, they find that jar, but it's empty. So they're thinking the shit with Brian was all over the news, and whoever's behind all of this probably, like, they were probably watching all of this go down right. probably watching the whole time and they probably called it off sure but even with all of these clues they're not really able to figure much out just more questions really like who the fuck would do this and why like just hmm. money right it, that, but what's like so much more than just money though right because what would be the motive for the fucking scavenger hunt yeah. Say, make this guy go in there and get the money and drop it off at a, sec- at a secure location mm-hmm. and leave right mm-hmm. seems yeah. legit why be so fucking extra about it right you don't have to get fancy. They also try and follow Brian's like entire day, what came before the bank robbery. And they start at his job because he said that's where he was. He was on shift. Mamma mia, pizzeria. For mama mia, pizzeria. Mm-hmm. So they go there and they find out that around 1.30 p.m., an order was called in for two small sausage and pepperoni pizzas for delivery to somewhere in the outskirts of town. Brian's shift was almost over when this call came in, but he decided he'd take that one last delivery and he left the pizzeria with the two pizzas Mm -hmm. at about 2 p.m. 
Which was only about a half an hour before he was at the bank. Yes. Yep. The police find out that the delivery location is only accessible by a dirt road, and the location is a small little TV transmission tower in a wooded area with a house nearby. When they get there, they find shoe prints that match Brian's, tire tracks that match his car, but they don't find anything that would lead them to another person. The next day, a reporter goes out there to see if they can get like the fucking scoop or just take some pictures because this was huge. Yeah, right. Um, and the reporter notices a large man kind of pacing near the house, the house that was by the TV transmission thing. Mm-hmm. The man says his name is Bill Rothstein. Bill is 59. He's single. He's a handyman. He is multilingual, and it seems like he's just completely unaware about what could have gone on basically on his property, like his backyard butted right up to where where Brian met someone. The trail on Brian and the collar bomb heist is going a little cold, but about a month after that, that We're going to warm it up a little. We're going to get warm. So a month after that day, the day Brian died, Mr. Bill Rothstein calls 911 with a little story. Oh. He says, quote, At 8645 Peach Street, in the garage, there is a frozen body. Mr. Bill's got a body in his garage. Okay, Bill. And he's telling on himself. You, you're tattling <laughs> on yourself, Bill. Bill. Do you know that's not something you're supposed to do? Fucking Bill. He said it's in the freezer. So police get there. They find the body, the frozen remains of a man named Jim Roden, and Bill's arrested. As one would be. (laughs) Right. I mean, you got a fucking body. That's what happens. He tells them he's been in agony over this for weeks. He's considered taking his own life. He wrote a suicide note, and in the note, he says he did not kill him or participate in his death. Are we supposed to feel bad for Bill? I, I don't think I feel very bad for Bill. Okay. I won't either, then. I mean, Peer pressure. I don't feel bad for too many people that have bodies in their freezers. Nah. You know, it's nah. just, nah. it kind of seems sketch no matter yeah. what way you look at it. At the end of that suicide note, mm-hmm. he wrote, this has nothing to do with the Wells case. Oh. As in Brian Wells. Okay. Mm-hmm. And As in the man who the called bomb. up the bank mm-hmm. and then had the bomb yeah. and then blew up. Talk about people offering up information that no one asked about. Right. Hmm. Bill. Dumb. But, I mean, they're pretty sure that the the body in his freezer has a lot to do with the Wells case. So. I would assume so. Bill's story goes a little something like this. I mean, they take him in, and this is what he has to say. Okay. In mid-August, his ex-girlfriend called him. Call, called him on the telly. Called Brian or? Called Bill. This Bill. is Bill. Okay. This is Bill's story about why he's got a fucking body. Okay. His ex-girlfriend called him. Her name is Marjorie Deal Armstrong, and she was in trouble. Oh, mm-hmm. so according Marjorie calls Bill. Yep, according to Bill, Marjorie was in big trouble because she shot her boyfriend, Jim Roden, the guy that was found in the freezer, Okay. with a 12-gauge shotgun because they had a fight about money. She wanted Bill's help in removing and disposing of Jim's body. Now, Bill and Marjorie hadn't been together since, like, the 70s, and it's 2003, so, like, okay, 
But but Marjorie is just like, oh, I remember Bill. He's totally the type of guy who will help me hide a body in a freezer. <laughs> you know that Bill guy. But <laughs> From three decades <laughs> he ago. He did it. He did it for her. Don't do this for people, guys. It's not a favor. No. It's a crime. Just call and report. I don't care how hot in the crotch they make you. Especially not three fucking decades don't, later. No. Don't let them convince you to hide a body in your freezer. Nothing good will come of it. Um, Agony so, and pain. Yeah. So he did it. Bill put Jim's body in his freezer. He melted down the whole ass shotgun that Marjorie used to kill Jim. Oh, Me- wow. So melted it down. I guess that's one way to get rid of it. Okay. You don't want to I didn't know somewhere. that. No. I, I never would have thought of that. But Mm-mm. Bill. Hmm. Bill, Bill did. Bill did his research. Yep. You can melt and a gun. <laughs> he was supposed to dismember Jim Roden's body and grind up his body parts, but he just couldn't do it. And he called 911 because he was afraid of what Marjorie might do to him if he didn't follow the plan to the T. I mean, Marjorie really just was fucking getting off scot-free here. Yeah. Like, she kills a guy. Yeah. And then she just says, oh, oh he's your problem now, Bill. Just you fucking wait about Marjorie. Oh, God, Let me tell you. Marjorie. So... Bill says he's a genius and he wants everyone to know. He just had to throw that in there. Like, that was, like, one of the first things he said. Actually, I should have said that first. He told them he's a genius. Bill said to the himself. Cops, to the cops. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. He's a genius. Doesn't seem like a genius Very to smart. Me. Very smart Bill. Very hmm. smart man. Seems like he's, he's done got a couple of really he's dumb things. He's got the things. best brain. Seems like he did a couple of really dumb things. I think he did. So they pay Marjorie a little visit and she's arrested for Jim's murder. Of course. Marjorie's a little intense, you could say. According to Medium.com, she is super tall, really smart. Everyone in this story can't be smart, okay? Well, Margie, Marjorie, Mm -hmm. I'm going to call her Marge. Marge. She has an (laughs) encyclopedic... I can't even say the word (laughs) because I don't have one. (laughs) Encyclopedic memory. Oh. She was born rich, but she is troubled. She had actually killed another one of her boyfriends before. A man named Bob Thomas. She shot Bob six times in self-defense, as you do. And she was acquitted for that murder after being declared mentally incompetent seven times. Wow. Seven times. Seven times over. Yeah. So eventually a judge ruled her competent and she was acquitted. So like on the eighth try. (laughs) Wow. She was sane, I guess. So she later married a man named Richard Armstrong and he died of a head injury that was ruled accidental. Marjorie was just out there killing men. Like a black widow baby. Wow. Yeah. But during the murder trial of Bob Thomas, so the one that she shot six times. Okay. In self-defense. The first one, I think. Okay. She was found mentally competent enough to stand trial, even though investigators found over 1,000 pounds of rotting cheese and butter in her house. (laughs) I'm sorry to laugh at someone's illness. I told you it gets bumpy. (laughs) But come on. Yeah. She was hoarding cheese and butter. Yeah. That's not the thing I would hoard. No. It would be real stinky. Because where do you put it? Yeah, you can't. That would be my first problem. Yeah. The smell. And it would just like melt and get and like real oily. It goes and, like, bad so quick. Yeah. Butter and cheese. What was it? Butter and cheese. Butter and cheese. In a, a thousand pounds. One thousand pounds. And it kind of starts to make me wonder. 
Was it tub butter? I don't know. Was it stick butter? Was it shredded cheese? Was it cheese slices? Like I'm I'm picturing like giant cubes of cheese, but I doubt that's what it is. I'm picturing <laughs> a wide array, a very just different big cheeses. variety, an assortment some of Swiss, cheeses. Some months. Colors, shapes, <laughs> sizes, just everywhere in the house. I don't know what I don't I would love to know what the fuck was going on with the butter and cheese. Wow. Yeah. I wonder why I wonder why that. I don't know. Of all things. Of all the things you yeah. could hoard. Uh-huh. Butter and cheese. Butter and cheese, baby. I wonder if she even ate it. I don't know. Maybe it just made her feel comfortable. <laughs> I would rather <laughs> it, her sorry. like hoard toenails. Toenail right. clippings, you know? Yeah. Clippings, of course. not Because that's like an toenails. expected kind of fucked up thing. Right. Butter and cheese is not expected. No. <laughs> uh, not not in the slightest. Uh, I'm stuck on this one. I know. I knew you were going to I wish that there part. would be a picture. I know. Of her house. Mm-hmm. They have to have some kind yeah. of investigation This pictures. was... Um, who do I got to blow the, to see the pictures? <laughs> that was in the 80s after, like, during the the Rob Thomas, Bob Thomas uh, trial. Okay, gotcha. I don't know. I would love to know, man. Um, she was eventually diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and she's known Aww. to be paranoid and very narcissistic. I feel like, obviously, she was, well, I mean, if she's declared mentally ill, mm-hmm. that's awful and terrible. Yeah. So there must have been something. Something with that butter and cheese. I wonder what it, it just really Isn't makes me wonder. Isn't it fascinating? It really is. And I feel, I mean, I, here's the thing. You feel bad for her because of that. And it must have been at least somewhat untreated. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel bad for her because she killed people. Right. Multiple people. Yep. So back to now, Marjorie is arrested for the murder of her boyfriend, Jim Roden, the man in the freezer. And 16 months later, in January of 2005, she pleads guilty, but mentally ill, and she's sentenced to 20 years in prison. That's for the murder of the freezer, ma- freezer man. So Bill, if you've lost track, he's the one who hid the body for Marjorie, who lived by the TV station. He dies of cancer in 2004. Oh, God. So Brian's dead by collar bomb. Okay. The scavenger hunt led police to Bill Rothstein in a roundabout way. Bill Rothstein had the body of Marjorie's boyfriend in the freezer. Bill is now dead. Marjorie's in prison for killing her boyfriend. And everyone's wondering if and how the fuck this is all connected. Got it. Right? Mm-hmm. All right. Are we on track? Track. On. <laughs> it's really just, it's the location of Bill Rothstein's property being so close to where Brian was supposed to deliver those pizzas. Right. And the last line of that suicide note that, like saying that Brian. This had nothing to had, do with yeah. the Wells yes. thing or yeah. whatever. Mm-hmm. Because like, we were talking about this just the other day, me and you. If you're offering stuff up freely like that, you're insecure about it. There's something 90% more of to the it. time. Right. Yeah. With no one asking you and you just offer this shit up. It's right. like, come on. There's a reason mm-hmm. for it. Yeah. Something, even if it's subconscious in right. your mind. Yeah. What did his note say? That this has nothing to do with the Wells? Yeah, this has nothing to do with the Wells case. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we're in 2005 now, and Marjorie wants to talk. She says that if she can be transferred to a different facility, like a minimum security prison. If she could have just yeah, one room just with two refrigerators. Where she can do some goddamn yoga. And she could store her butter and cheese. (laughs) (laughs) She will talk a little bit more. Get me some fucking butter and cheese. At least a thousand pounds. Yep. 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 Or so. (laughs) But if she can be moved, she is willing to tell them everything she knows about the Brian Wells collar bomb case. 
Which is nothing. (laughs) But, I mean, like, she seems like the perfect fucking, like, suspect. Right. For someone to orchestrate this, like, elaborate heist. She's really fucking smart. She's eccentric. She's a narcissist. So she would love to put on a show for the world. Right. And let everyone know she's a genius, Mm -hmm. you know? So, during a series of interviews with the FBI, Marjorie tells them that, of course, she wasn't involved with the bank robbery collar bomb plot of course not of course not god no but she did supply those kitchen timers that were attached to the bomb oh so she had a very important part whoops she was within a mile of the bank when brian robbed it and she also says that brian dead brian was in on the entire thing and that bill rothstein was the mastermind oh and how convenient because they're both dead right and bill did say i'm very smart yeah Mm-hmm. But, you know, he sure did. I just want to put a little th- notation in here. Okay. If you're very smart, like Bill claimed he was, and like Marjorie claimed she was, I don't think that your collar bomb would look such a goddamn mess. <laughs> you know? I like thought you, you were going to say, you don't need to tell people. <laughs> <laughs> that too. But, I mean, I don't think you'd have a few kitchen timers, a padlock, a fucking weird wires going right. everywhere. Right. I think it'd be a little bit more put together think so police are taking like all of this in but they're using other forms of investigating too so they speak with several informants who tell them the same story they'd all heard marjorie say things like she killed jim roden because he was gonna snitch about everything about the collar bomb heist and that she had even measured brian's neck for the bomb Oh. And then a witness comes forward saying that their brother-in-law, a man named Kenneth Barnes, who's a crack dealer, was also involved in the plot. Kenneth and Marjorie know each other. They're old friends. And Kenneth had begun to run his mouth about the whole thing a little too much. He was talking to a lot of people about this little plot. He was just real fucking proud of himself. He was, I think. He was just excited to be involved in something. Mm-hmm. Ooh, scandalous. Like part this. of something. Yeah, just to, be, just to be a part of something. Part of the guys, <gasps> you know, the God. good old boys club. <laughs> so Kenneth was picked up on an unrelated drug charge, and that's when this witness came forward. Since okay. Kenneth didn't want more time in prison than he was already facing for the drugs, he decided to spill. He spilled the beans. He spilled the fucking beans. He says Marjorie was behind it all. Just. She was a master manipulator. These people. (laughs) This is a very convoluted, tangled web. It's truly a web. He says Marjorie needed the money from the robbery to pay him to kill her father. Oh. Because he was spending her inheritance. Yeah. (laughs) That's not how it works, Marjorie. Oh, my God. I'm not sure it's funny. Marjorie. Oh, honey. Oh, Marge. Your father has money. Yeah. Your father can spend that money. Yeah. And, he's and when like he in dies. His 80s. He was yeah. in his 80s. And when he dies, if there's any left, that is your inheritance. Right. It isn't your inheritance no. before he's dead, Marjorie. No, 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 no. no you no. entitled motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Go sit on your butter and cheese. <laughs> Hard agree. <laughs> So they're like, now we're getting somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, like, okay, the wheels, the wheels are rolling. We're chugging along. They go see Marge again and they tell her, we have enough to press charges mm. on this for this collar bomb heist. Bada boom, bada bam, da bam. And she goes haywire. As one she would. slamming her fist on the table. She's cursing everyone out. 
but fuck she's, you, fuck you, and fuck you. But she's still talking because she can't stop. Yeah, she's narcissistic. Yeah, it's fuck. exactly. She even agrees to take a ride around town to show them all of the places that she was, that she, like she was hiding out when the heist was going on. Then she said, I'm done talking until you give me full immunity. Oh. Mm-hmm. Why do these but, motherfuckers <laughs> think that they get to make goddamn demands? I know. But the thing is, they didn't need anything else from her. Yeah. You know what I mean? They, they, didn't, they had enough. Right. Exactly. So, in July of 2007, almost four years after the day Brian Wells died, U.S. Attorney Mary Beth Buchanan holds a press conference and announces that the investigation is now over. Marjorie Deal Armstrong and Kenneth Barnes are being charged with the plot with Marjorie as the mastermind. Mm -hmm. She announced that through the investigation they did that Bill Rothstein was a co-conspirator and that Brian Wells was also a co-conspirator. Oh, Brian. Yeah. They say that Brian had agreed to rob the bank wearing what he thought was a fake bomb. Oh. Which explains why he was acting so fucking casual about it. Sure. Um, And he was told that the scavenger hunt shit, all of the shit, all of the, the evidence in the car, the papers, the maps, everything, that was just to confuse the police. Like, if he was caught, he could show the police those maps and stuff yeah, and be sure. like, I didn't have a choice. You know what right. I mean? But at some point, Brian was fucking double-crossed because, yeah. I mean, it was obviously a real bomb. It killed and him. And he knew once it started beeping. Yeah. That's that it like, obviously wasn't fake. Yeah, that's when he knew. But this kind of pisses people off, especially Brian's family, because they are, like, hardcore maintaining that he was innocent. I don't know, but it it does, like, leave a lot of questions. Like, why the fuck would he agree to that in the first place? Right. Like, why would he put that on? Right. Uh, so. I mean, when you're dealing with shady people who yeah. are going to rob a bank. Yeah. You might not want to just trust them. I know. So a few weeks after that announcement was made, the FBI says they've come to the conclusion that the scavenger hunt thing was all a hoax. The bomb attached to Brian Wells would have detonated if it were to be removed in any way, like even with the codes or the keys. If he took it off, it would have gone off. So he was meant to die the whole time. Right. So even if the police wouldn't have like found him and pulled him over. Yeah. He was going to die. So that's probably really why they did the scavenger hunt, to buy the police time to find him. Yeah, I don't know. So then Brian wouldn't make it back to them Mm -hmm. and, like, detonate it in front of them. Right. I don't know, and it's so hard because they're dead. Right. So Kenneth Barnes pleads guilty to conspiracy and weapons charges that stemmed from this collar bomb heist. He's sentenced to 45 years in prison, but he wants less time, of course, so he agrees to testify against Marge at her Hmm. trial. Marge's trial happens. Everyone's on the edge of their seat because they think, like, finally they're going to know the truth. They're going to know everything about this. But Marge is deemed incompetent to stand trial. She goes through, like, whatever she has to go through, and she's finally found competent. But then she's diagnosed with cancer. And she's got three to seven years to live. They decide to continue on with the trial, and Kenneth Barnes takes the stand. Okay, come on, (laughs) Kenny. Let's go, Kenny. Give me some juice. (laughs) He says Marjorie was definitely the mastermind. Bill Rothstein was for sure in on it. Brian Wells was for sure in on it. And Brian did it for the promise of the money. Kenneth says that Brian was in love with a sex worker, and he had been buying crack to give her in exchange for sex. But it 
wasn't cheap for Brian to keep buying crack for sex, so he'd gotten himself into this financial hole. So he was promised money to win over his crush if he went through with the collar bomb plan. There's lots of curveballs yeah, here. Yeah, I know. That's like <laughs> what makes it it's great. It's many a bump. <laughs> <laughs> Told you it was fucking bumpy. Many a bump. Marjorie takes the stand. She's saying, give me the butter and cheese. <laughs> And I will talk. <laughs> and make it Swiss, for God's sake. I gotta do that again. <laughs> Marjorie takes the stand. She's being Marjorie. Sure. And she says, quote, I never met Brian Wells, and I never knew Brian Wells. Never. I became aware of him on the day that he died. I saw it on the news. Among many, many other things. Of she was on, she was, it was almost two hours, I think, that she was up there because she just kept going off and the judge had to silence her and rein her back uh, in. Marge. Talking in circles. Mm-hmm. So the jury deliberated for 11 hours and returned guilty verdicts on all three charges from Marge. Armed bank robbery. Guilty. Conspiracy. Guilty. And using a destructive device in a crime of violence. Guilty. She sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years and she died in 2017. Oh, wow. Recently. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, we still don't know the complete truth about this whole thing. There's... One man, an FBI investigator, he's named Jim Fisher, and he thinks there's no way in hell Marjorie could have come up with all that shit on her own. So Jim Fisher, he dove super deep into this case, like he was in it to win it. And one of his main pieces of evidence, I mean, not evidence, but one of his main like theories, it comes from the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit's profile of the offender. Obviously, they don't They're not saying who the offender is. This is just like the type of person that the offender would be. Sure. It says, quote, It continues to be the opinion of the department that this is much more than a mere bank robbery. The behavior seen in this crime was choreographed by Collar Bomber. I don't know if that's a placeholder for the name. Oh, probably. Collar Bomber. Watching on the sidelines according to a written script in which he attempted to direct others to do what he wanted them to do. Because of the complex nature of this crime, the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit believes there were multiple motives for the offender, and money was not the primary one. Okay. So, hmm. she wanted the money, so Kenneth said. Right. You know what I mean? Right. She wanted the money to, to get her dad killed. Right. But they're saying money's not the main motive. So they're saying, the FBI, they're saying that whoever was the true mastermind was... They didn't give a shit about the money. They gave a shit about showing off this elaborate scheme they concocted, and they wanted to show off that they could make a collar bomb. Bill. Yeah. Yeah. The profile also says the mastermind is, quote, comfortable around a wide variety of power tools and shop machines. A frugal person who saves scraps of sundry materials in order to reuse them in various projects. Bill. Yeah, the type of person who takes pride in building a variety of things. Bill. Yep. All roads point to Bill. It points to Freezer and the Body Bill. Yeah. Yep. God damn. Bill could have very easily built a bomb. 
He told the cops he was a genius. Uh, like, yeah. That's a thing. That happened. Jim Fisher thinks that Bill was just, like, playing with the investigators from the very start. He wanted to send them on this, like, fruitless chase around town. He thinks Bill called 911 so that he could set this whole thing up to throw Marjorie under the bus, like, control the narrative from the start. Because I guess he thinks that Bill thought, I'm sorry, he thinks that Bill thought that one of them would have done it sure. eventually if he didn't do it first. Mm -hmm. So this was Bill controlling the narrative. It makes sense yeah. to me. Jim Fisher said, quote, the son of a bitch ended up winning. He died with all of the secrets. He died taking all of the answers with him. He gets the last laugh in that sense. He escaped punishment. He escaped detection. He left us with, he left us with these idiots and a bunch of questions. End quote. <laughs> what yeah, a savage. Right? And that's that's the collar bomb heist. So it's not completely one hundred percent solved. No. I mean we know the key players. Bits and pieces. We just don't know who started the whole thing. The but web? I mean they're all kind of pieces of shit. So. Right. <laughs> We've got a bunch of pieces of shit. Yeah. And we don't know what to do with we them. We don't know what to do with them. And they're dead. Yeah. Hmm. They're all dead. I don't think Kenneth Barnes is dead. I didn't look. He was so ready to snitch on everybody. <laughs> so thank you to whoever um, requested that case. I probably know who you are and I probably talk to you all the time. I just don't know your email. So Yeah. That was a wild, wild ride, guys. Yeah. What are you telling me about? Oh, Lord. I'm telling you about... I chose the case of Todd Kolhep from the listener form. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be telling you all about his bullshit antics. Who requested this one? Shauna. Oh, and Shauna, I don't think Shauna is like a Facebook type of gal. Mm. She is more so on Twitter. Okay. And she's very listener scented. Very. Shauna, I can smell you from all the way over here. You are incredibly listener sentence. You smell just like a fucking listener. Just like <laughs> one. On March 7th of 1971, Todd Kolhap was born in the very serial killery state of Florida. Oh, Florida. Hot, humid, and serial killery. Mm-hmm. Todd's parents ended up getting divorced when he was only two years old, and his mom was awarded custody. She ends up getting married to another guy about a year later, and it said that Todd had an incredibly unhealthy and just downright harmful relationship with the stepdad, and he often made mention that he liked to go live with his biological father. Oh. There are psychological reports that mention this and go into detail in regards to the relationship between the two of them. Between him and his real dad? No, between him and the stepfather. Okay. It said that Todd was a particularly troublesome little lad. He was aggressive with other kids, and he would oftentimes destroy their toys and other personal property. When he was nine years old, he started going to counseling, and he was described as quote-unquote explosive and also quote-unquote preoccupied with sexual content. Oh. We've spoken at length about the triad on this podcast, mm -hmm. and Todd fit right into it. Okay. okay. 
He was extremely cruel to animals. He shot a dog with a BB gun and killed a goldfish with Clorox bleach. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Who knows the extent of Ugh. this? Like, obviously, there could have been plenty of other crimes done to animals that weren't even reported that he just yeah. did, like, secretively. At one point during Todd's childhood, he spent three and a half months in a Georgia psychiatric hospital due to his inability to get along with other kids. Mm. His father said that the only emotion Todd was capable of was anger. Oh, shit. Despite Todd's mother having custody of him, in 1983, Todd went to live with his biological father in Arizona. This was after his mom and that stepdad separated. So, like, talk about too late. Right. You know? Yeah. The damage, I'm sure, was already done. Todd worked various local jobs, enjoyed collecting weapons, and was taught how to, quote, blow things up and make bombs, by, end quote, by, by his father. Whom? Oh, his my father. God. Bio dad. Great. Mm-hmm. His relationship with his dad seemed promising at first, but then his dad was just gone all the time. He was out with his girlfriends, and Todd decided he was going to move back in with his mother. It's reported that she made a number of excuses for him to stay living with his dad. Okay. Well. Mm -hmm. On November 25th of 1986, Todd went from being cruel to animals to kidnapping and raping. Mm. He ended up kidnapping a 14-year-old girl in Tempe, Arizona. He is said to have threatened her with a 22 caliber revolver and forced her into his home where he tied her up and raped her. He ended up physically walking her home after assaulting her, and on the way, he told her he would kill her younger siblings if she ever told anyone what happened between the two of them. What the fuck? Yeah. Four- but 14, too. Yeah. And how old is he? I believe he was 14 as well, but I could okay. be wrong. Wow. He was right around there. Wow. He ended up being charged with kidnapping, sexual assault, and committing a dangerous crime against children. He pled guilty to only the kidnapping charge in 1987, and the other two charges were dropped. Uh, he was mm-hmm. he was then sentenced to 15 years in prison, and he had to register as a sex offender. It said that he was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, and his IQ was 118, which is above average. Mm-hmm. Quote, the judge in the case said Kolhep was very bright and should be advanced academically, but behaviorally and emotionally dangerous and likely could not be rehabilitated. Wow. Mm-hmm. Isn't that like a fucking gut punch? That's scary. But there's Ugh. people like that. Mm-hmm. Kolhep's probation officer wrote a similar description in court papers and added that he felt the world owed him something. Mm-hmm. Don't they all fucking they think that? Truly. Shit. 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 <laughs> Kolheb's attorney said while defending him that he didn't believe that Todd would go on to harm others in the future. Well, he's getting paid honestly to do that, you know. During his imprisonment, Kolheb was initially cited for violations that included some violent behavior. After turning 20, however, he had no other records of disobedience. Todd was released in August of 2001 after serving 14 years in prison. So he went as like an older teen. Yeah, so, I mean, it was basically half of his life Mm -hmm. that he was in there. Yeah, He was probably 15, 16, somewhere in there Mm -hmm. when he went in. I mean, that's quite a long time. Mm -hmm. So after he got out, he ended up moving to South Carolina, which is where his mom was living. And he started a job as a graphic designer in January 2002. Oh, fancy. Mm -hmm. I wonder if he studied that in prison. I will tell you. 
He stayed at the... <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then I just get back to business. <clears throat> he So he stayed at the Spartanburg Company until November of 2003. And just so you know, while he was in prison, he graduated from the Central Arizona College oh. with, a, mm-hmm, with a computer science bachelor's degree. Okay. So then in 2003, he enrolled in Greensville Technical College, and then he transferred to South Carolina Upstate in 2004. He went to school there for about four years before graduating in 2008 with a bachelor's in science with a degree in business administration marketing. Wow. Fucking fancy. Fancy, schmancy guy. Now, remember how Todd had to register as a sex offender when he went into jail? Yes. Okay. He ended up lying about this. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. about the felony charge and he got a real estate license on june 30th of 2006 oh fuck you he's just all over the goddamn board isn't he he was a graphic designer and then he had a fucking business administration marketing degree Mm -hmm. and now he's a fucking real estate agent he doesn't know what the fuck he wants he's a little confused that todd cole had (laughs) he even went as far as to build a firm that had around a dozen other real estate agents underneath of him Oh. Mm-hmm. He was, quote, recognized as a top-selling agent in the Carolina region. He could have sold some, some of our listeners he could their have. fucking houses. He could have. You Did guys. He? You got a story? If you are in the Carolina region and you or someone you know has ever bought a home, find out if Todd Kolheb sold it to you. Was it fucking Todd? Boom. Aside from the real estate license, he also obtained a private pilot license. Oh, God. Yeah. And he purchased several properties out of state. And this is honestly just a fucking dream come true for most of the people that we talk about on this podcast. Right. You know? Yeah, for sure. In May of 2014, he bought right around 100 acres of land. And this 100 acres of land spanned nine miles. Hmm. That's 14 kilometers for our, our overseas friends. Who used that weird system. Yeah. He purchased this mass amount of land for a mere $305,632. He then fenced all nine miles of this land in with a reported $80,000 fence. Wow. Right? Now, we've only spoken about one of his crimes so far, the kidnapping and rape, right? Mm -hmm. But there's more. Spoiler alert. Some people who were interviewed after his next convictions said that he was extremely outgoing and professional, but he would talk about his weapons like his firearms frequently and also used a lot of heavy sexual innuendo quite often. Mm -hmm. A different interviewee said that he was angry and condescending. There was a banker who worked with him who said that he watched porn all the time, even while supposedly working. And there were waitresses at a Waffle House that Todd frequented that became so uncomfortable by his behavior that the male cook had to go out and take his order for them. Oh, my God. Kick him out. Right. Don't let him come back. (laughs) Don't let him come back. Don't you fucking let him. It's said that that Waffle House is where he first met one of his future victims that we'll talk about later, Megan Lee McCraw Coxie. Okay. Let's talk for a minute about the Superbike Motorsports murders. We're doing a little curvy curve, but it makes sense in the end. First, I want you to listen to a phone call from a customer who walks in on the scene. Okay. Apparently, everybody's been shot up here. His mama's been shot, the mechanic's been shot, and the owner. 
So police race to the scene and they find four people dead, all execution style. <sighs> and they have very, very little to go on. I'm assuming that there wasn't surveillance because it because they could have easily looked and known. Mm -hmm. But they ended up interviewing a man named Kelly Sisk, who was the last known customer at Superbike Motorsports on November 6, 2003, potentially just moments before the shooting. Kelly Sisk and his four-year-old son were in the shop to make a payment on a go-kart that he was purchasing for his son. Kelly said that he was in the shop between 30 and 45 minutes because when he went in, he liked to browse the different bikes. And he said towards the time he left, Scott Ponder, who was the owner of the shop, started talking to another customer who was looking at a black bike that Scott said was a good starter bike. When Kelly found out about the shooting shortly after it happened, he knew he had to go to the police and talk to them, assuming he really was the last customer in there. He gave the police a rough idea of what the man looked like so they could do a sketch, and he really remembered the narrowness of the man's lips and the small eyes he had. Mm. That sketch was what police worked off of for 13 years. When homicide detectives surveyed the shop, they thought the following occurred. The perpetrator walked into the back of the shop and first gunned down Chris Sherbert, the shop's mechanic. He was working on a bike at the time. The perp then moved into the showroom and shot Beverly Guy, who was Scott Ponder's mother and the shop's bookkeeper. The murderer then shot both Brian Lucas, who was a service manager, and Scott Ponder, the owner, slash Beverly's son, and they, as they ran out the front door. Scott was trying to call his wife, Melissa, when this happened, in theory. Uh. Yeah. He, I guess it's, uh, he had dialed a couple of threes on his phone, and his wife was the third favorite in his phone. Oh, oh that's so fucking sad. <sighs> yeah. What you won't hear talked about, unless you're a resident of the Chesney area or Spartanburg area, because it was widespread gossip for quite some time, is that they first thought Scott Ponder's wife, Melissa, may have been having an affair and a love triangle was the cause of the vicious homicide. Oh. Billy Jensen and Paul Holes did an episode on Todd Colhat back in 2019, and they really zeroed in on this piece of the case, Melissa and Scott Ponder. Okay. They even had Melissa Ponder on the show to discuss the details about what happened with the investigation and how the police spent an adequate amount of time looking at specifically her family, thinking that they were the root cause of the attack. I won't give it all away because I think it's a good interview and you can all go listen to that later. Mm -hmm. It's on the murder squad is what it's called. But essentially, the police received a tip that Melissa and Scott's son was perhaps not really Scott's son at all. Oh. Mm -hmm. They wanted to obviously test the DNA to see if they were a match. Sure. But instead of just calling Melissa and being like, hey, can we get a DNA sample from your son? Right. They ended up getting urine from a dirty diaper that she oh. threw out. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So against her, you know, knowledge. Yeah. She had no idea that that was happened, that that was happening. And she had even said, if they would have just asked me, I would have obviously yeah. given it to them. Right. I have nothing to hide. Huh. But investigators obviously send the DNA to the lab and it doesn't match up. They test it again because she's like, there's no fucking way. Mm-hmm. Test it again, and it doesn't match up again. Such a shit show. It caused a lot of issues for Melissa and her family, down to like inheritance money being taken oh, away wow. from her son. 
And I think it was like an aunt of Scott's or something dying, thinking that that wasn't his child. Oh, wow. So, so many fucking issues. The police eventually corrected things because his son was definitely his son. Mm -hmm. But you'll have to go to listen to the murder squad to find out how and what and where and all of that. So, 13 years later, on August 31st of 2016, Kayla Brown, who was 30 years old, and her boyfriend, Charles David Carver, who was 32, were cleaning houses for a local real estate agent. I bet you can guess who that real estate agent mm, was. Mr. I sell the most houses mm-hmm. in the world. Kayla ended up sending a text message to her friend that she was on her way home, but she never came home. That friend reported Kayla missing and Charles, who went by Charlie, and that's what I'll call him from now on, his mother reported him missing as well. Several weeks later, Charlie started being active on social media out of the blue. It was really weird because yeah. it, it, they, no one else had heard from them. Okay. He was posting Hotel California lyrics, weird things like life would be lonely without me. Sometimes I dig a hole in my backyard to keep the neighbors guessing. Just strange, especially because he was missing and no one had heard from him. Right, yeah. You don't just pop back up on social media when you've disappeared. Oh, that gives me a really, you know, Mm -hmm. no one had even been in contact with him for weeks. And then he's just like, hi, how are you? You know what I mean? Here's a meme. Yeah. The investigators initially didn't suspect foul play. They believed that maybe Kayla and Charlie had just run away together, and they were both adults. They were 30 and 32. Okay. However, after reviewing phone pings and then waiting for two months to follow up on said pings, they decided to dig a bit further. They end up searching property on November 3rd, 2016, the property that the phone had last pinged at, And they find Kayla Brown in a metal storage container. Uh, Alive. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. She was chained to the wall, and the investigators found her because they could hear banging noises coming from the container as they were searching. Oh, my God. Could you imagine if they hadn't looked in there and she was, like, sleeping at the time? That stresses me out. Fuck. Kayla had been held captive for two months, and the authorities knew of the pings right away. It's speculated that since there was a local election coming up, they had waited until right before the election to do the search. Oh, if that's mm-hmm. true. Yeah. I hate that. Yeah, to do the search and rescue to get the sheriff reelected. Ugh. They had videotaped Ugh. the rescue, they aired it on television, oh. and he did get reelected. It's one of the only reasons why police would wait two months to search a ping that came from land owned by a man with a felony and who was registered as a sex offender, right? I'm mm-hmm. mad about this. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Aside Fuck you. Aside from thinking the couple ran off together, this is just a theory. Right. That a lot of people theorize. It makes sense. Yeah. Shit. Grab that. Back up there, Just one. Are you okay? Grab one. Go. Do you have any weapons? Coming through, okay? What's your name? What's your name? Right here. Lauren. Lauren. Gotcha. All right. Just a girl. Just a girl. Just a girl. How are you, honey? This is bolt cutters. This is our best. He's a paramedic. Oh, yeah. Okay, we're going to get you out of there, okay? This ain't loose for me. Anybody got a, I need a handcuff key. Handcuff key. I don't, I got a ring here. Hold up. Don't slide back. Hold up. He's got a lot. We got to let you take pictures. Randy, let me see your lot, Randy. You can you can put your hand down. You're okay. We're here, okay? Yes, sir. Just sit back. Lot on or off. 
we'll get the rest of it here. Let's get her out of here. Okay. We're getting bolt cutters, honey. Don't, don't. You got pictures of the cuffs? No, hold on. Bolt cutters. Is both feet. Just one. Let me it's see. Attached it's to a chain. chain from okay. The wall okay. And my neck's attached to the wall up here. Okay. All right. All right. We're gonna get you out, sweetheart. Okay. You got a handcuff, kid. I got no. Mine's on my car. I got no. Mine's on the car. Gloves on. I did that. No big deal. Bolt cutter. No big deal. Just hit the chain right there. Move. Hold it up. Just no. Just right there at her hand, Brandon. We'll we'll get it off. We'll get it off here. Cut it right here. Do you know where your buddy is? Charlie? Yes. He shot him. He shot him? Who didn't? Todd Colehep shot Charlie Carver three times in the chest, wrapped him in a blue tarp, put him in the bucket of the tractor, locked me down here, and I've never seen him again. Okay. He says he's dead and buried. He says there's several bodies dead and buried out here, and he okay. says that the dogs will be ruined if they go looking because there's red pepper. We're going to step you out, sweet dog, because there's what? Red pepper. Okay. Okay. Tell the dog people that. That was a clip of the investigators and the search team, obviously, Mm -hmm. police in general, authorities, searching the land, finding the container, and then their very first conversation with Kayla. She really came all out with it, didn't she? She, like, at first she wasn't saying anything, and then she just fucking spilled everything. Uh And very, like, matter-of-fact to the point... Yeah. Boom. Like, and, and like remembered in like very little details. One stream of breath. Right. Like, right. Wow. Good for her. Obviously, the land belonged to Todd Kolhep. I probably didn't even need to tell you that. Todd Kolhep kidnapped Kayla Brown and Charlie David Carver, shot Charlie, disposed of his body, chained Kayla up, and started to rape her daily. <sighs> he confessed to Kayla about the Superbike Motorsports killings. And now, with the recovery of Kayla Brown and the information that she's able to share, authorities are able to zero in on Todd as, obviously, the person who did a lot of fucking horrible shit. Yeah. That they had no leads on for 13 fucking years. Right. Wow. The first, like, two weeks I was there in the building, my ankles were cuffed, my hands were cuffed behind my back, What did Todd do while you were there? We would get there between 1 and 3 o'clock every day, take me up to the main building, beat me, make me do whatever he wanted sexually, and then he'd put me back in the building. And then he would always come back between 5 and 7, take me back up to the building, beat me again. Most of the time, do whatever, get whatever out of
So just in case you guys couldn't hear in the very beginning, this is right after Kayla is rescued and she's still in the same clothes that she's rescued and she's sitting like in the back of an ambulance or somewhere very shaken up but you can tell her adrenaline is like fucking high as fuck Mm -hmm. and between the the rockiness of the vehicle or whatever is going on um and just the poor audio quality you might not be able to hear some of that in a in a nutshell she was basically saying that after todd chained her up he would come every day between one and three take her to the main building, feed her, and then rape her. However, Todd didn't believe in rape, he said. (laughs) Yeah, he basically made her do sexual acts, but if she were to say no, he wouldn't force it. Mm -hmm. However, he made it abundantly clear that if he wasn't being satisfied, he would shoot her just like he shot Charlie. So he's trying to pat himself on the fucking back. Yeah. And be like, oh, no, I didn't. She wanted it. Fuck you know, off. Go fuck yourself, you big piece of fucking shit. So that's essentially what her life was, you know, two times a day, every day for two months. Yeah. God, that's horrifying. So clearly they get to Todd. They bring him in for questioning. And he actually ends up confessing on his own hmm. to the Superbike Motorsports murders. He probably just kind of knows he's, he just, he, a woman was found chained on his property. Right. Doesn't really have a leg to fucking stand and on at sound, this point. It sounds like he told her everything. Yeah. About all of that yeah. anyway, so. Investigators were still kind of stumped as to what the MO was. Mm-hmm. Because they were like, why would this man go in and shoot four people like what could have pissed him off that much and supposedly Todd said that he had wrecked a bike and the shop workers made fun of him not only for wrecking his bike but then going in to buy another one oh Jesus Christ really like I'm sorry but get a fucking Mm -hmm. get some tougher skin dude something if that even happened the families of those people say like that doesn't even make sense for them to do that yeah like he was going in to spend money at their store Uh uh-huh why would they even after Kelly Sisk had told them about things and that, that black bike and stuff, there was a bill mm-hmm. of sale for a bike, but there was no name on it. But that's just another reason why they didn't have anything to go off of. I'm sorry, but she does live in proud. Todd is really basically just boasting about how he, quote unquote, cleared the building in 30 seconds. Yeah, what the fuck? So fucking disgusting. You're really cool, guy. Vile. So vile. Okay, this is a long quote that I'm going to read. A search of Kohlhepp's property also uncovered numerous weapons, including 9mm pistols outfitted with suppressors, semi-automatic rifles, and an undetermined amount of ammunition. Because there was no record of a background check under Kohlhepp's name for the purchase of the firearms, investigators believe he likely acquired all of these weapons illegally. Two bodies were discovered on Todd Kohlhepp's property following his arrest on November 6th and 7th. They were later identified as husband and wife Johnny Joe Coxie, who was 29, and Megan Lee McCraw Coxie, who was 26, who I mentioned earlier from the Waffle House. They were residents of Spartanburg who were, who were reported missing on December 22nd of 2015. 
They were allegedly hired by Todd Kolhep to work on his property. McCraw Coxie had been killed by a gunshot wound to the head on December 25th or 26th, while Johnny Joe Coxie had been killed a week earlier by a gunshot wound to the torso. According to the county coroner, they were identified through their extensive tattoos. Shortly following Todd Kolhep's arrest, authorities in Spartanburg County discovered a number of seemingly joking product reviews for various items such as padlocks, shovels, tasers, and gun accessories on retail website Amazon.com, written by a user known simply as me. One review about a padlock stated, solid locks have five on a shipping container. Won't stop them, but sure will slow them down till they are too old to care. Another written for a folding shovel read, keeping car for when you have to hide bodies and you left the full-size shovel at home. No, what? Does not come with a midget, which would have been nice. The reviewer's wish list page was listed as Todd Kolhep. Following his arrest, Kolhep claimed to his mother that there were many other victims. When his mother asked how many, his response was, you do not have enough fingers. Mm. During interrogation, he claimed to have shot a victim in Arizona. And on November 18th of 2016, it was reported to the Tempe Police Department that they had begun an investigation into Kolhep's claim, searching through unsolved homicides in the past three decades. They said they would focus on cases dated from 1983 to 1986, when Todd Kolhep was living with his father, and also between August of 2001, when Kolhep completed his sentence for kidnapping, and November of 2001, when he moved back to South Carolina. On November 25th of 2016, police in Greer, South Carolina, announced that they have named Todd Kolhep as a person of interest in an unsolved 2003 bank robbery and triple homicide at the local Blue Ridge Savings Bank. This crime was separated from the Chesney shootings by six months. The Chesney shootings are the Superbike Motorsports shootings. However, as of May 16th of 2018, no definitive link between Kolhep and the killings was established, and Kolhep has denied any involvement in the case. Todd told authorities that he would talk about the victims if the DA took away the possibility of the death penalty. Kolhep was charged with four counts of murder, and this was for the Superbike Motorsports store murders. He was also charged with one count of kidnapping, which is for Kayla Brown, obviously, and later he was charged with three additional counts of murder for the murders of Charles Charlie Carver and Johnny and Megan Coxey. He was also later charged with one additional count of kidnapping and three counts of possession of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime. His next court appearance after the charges was scheduled for January of 2017, and his attorney waived their right to appear. He had a wrongful death lawsuit filed against him from the relatives of the motorsports store murders, and Kayla Brown filed a civil lawsuit against him as well. On May 26 of 2017, Todd had pled guilty to seven counts of murder, two counts of kidnapping, and one count of criminal sexual assault. He was sentenced to seven consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole and a plea bargain that spared him from capital punishment. His defense reportedly swore at his sentencing that no other victims would be found, but Todd Kolhep continues to speak against that. 
saying that there were at least two other murders. He wrote to the Spartanburg Herald Journal in December of 2017 and claimed that there were more victims yet to be discovered. Quote, in August of 2020, some of Kolhap's belongings went to auction and the proceeds were donated to the victims' families. End quote. And that is all that we know about Tad Kolhap and his victims. Wow, fucked up. Yeah. I knew about that, um, the shipping container. Yeah. And how they found her in there and everything, but I didn't know that was him. Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow. Hmm. Because that wasn't that long ago, I mean... No, and I remember hearing about it on the news, Yeah. too, and seeing, like, the rescue mm-hmm. of Kayla Brown, but I didn't know anything, and there still really isn't that much about the Coxies. Right. Or about his life beforehand, or any of that, but mm-hmm. I do remember hearing about Kayla Brown on the news when all of that yeah. was going down. Wow. Kayla Brown, actually, when I was researching this, I found... An article that says charges dropped against woman who escaped serial killer Todd Kolhap. And what was she charged for? Yeah. So apparently prosecutors ended up dropping a domestic violence charge against Kayla Brown. Okay. Kayla Brown had apparently and her boyfriend had this this big blowout. And a week after all of this happened and things calmed down a little bit, the prosecutors dismissed charges because they couldn't be proven that beyond a reasonable doubt that something had happened. Okay. Kayla had told authorities that she punched her boyfriend in the face, but that was only because he bucked her with his chest during an argument that July. Oh, wow. And then it went on to say how Kayla Brown's other partners had died violently, which was a little bit strange. Hmm. Um, Kayla. Yeah. So authorities, this says authorities ruled that her fiance killed himself in February with self-inflicted stab wounds. And then Brown went missing in 2016, which is what I just told you about. And then obviously she went missing in 2016 and then her boyfriend, Charlie, died Mm -hmm. from Todd. Yeah. Yeah. And then this guy, there's a domestic violence thing. So Kayla's having a rough time. Yeah. So, yeah, and that was from WJBF.com. And that's that's Todd and his victims and I guess really the survival, little mini survival tale of Kayla as well. Yeah, that's horrifying. Just to think that there are people out there like that, Mm -hmm. like Todd. And really, who knows? You know, this guy was flying all over the place, too. Yeah. And meeting so many different people from selling people homes. And I mean, you have to be a little bit... um, you have to be a little bit charismatic to be that good at selling houses to people. Yeah, you know which what is I mean? so weird. And like hiding that big of a secret. Ugh. Right. And know. so you really don't know how many other people he has out there because yeah. he had claimed it was in the lower hundreds. Yeah. But then he said that there was only two other people. So it's very strange. And he right. wanted to get to 300, he had oh. said. Wow. God. Yeah. Lofty aspirations. Mm-hmm. That's that. And Melissa, just in case anyone's wondering, Scott Ponder, who owned the motorsports um, store, mm-hmm. his wife, Melissa, is remarried to actually to a homicide detective now. Really? Yeah. After going through all of that and really having her name and her son's name totally tarnished, mm-hmm. um, she found happiness at least. Wow. Good for her. Yeah. So thank you, Shauna, for yeah, sending for, that in. Thanks for requesting that. Yeah. Ha. Are you reading, watching, or listening? Um, 
I just, well, obviously I listened to the Murder Squad's episode on Todd mm-hmm. and they really kind of zeroed in on Melissa and Scott Ponder and that entire or- ordeal. So if you want to know a little bit more about that and hear from Melissa herself, mm-hmm. you can go listen to that. And I can, I'll actually tell you the episode because I still, that was episode, that episode came out July 8th of 2019 and it's just titled Todd Kolhep. Okay. So if you just search for that and Murder Squad, it'll pop up. So I listened to that, got a lot of valuable information about the Ponders and about everything that they went through. And of course, as you know, Paul Holes and his investigative background is just fucking super valuable to right. any any case that you want to research. Oh, yeah. Um, I finished reading Desert Rose by Kay Moore. It's a really good one. She's one of my indie author friends. So if you guys enjoy supporting indie authors, you can totally go check it out. I guess that's the only book that I'm reading or that I that I was reading yeah and I'm not watching anything that I know of what about you (laughs) that you know of yeah okay so I watched (laughs) Holiday oh I heard that that was a good one but I'm very surprised that you watched um I know I saw that Amanda Cuff recommended is that where you saw it oh no I just I saw it on because I was looking up someone had posted something about Emma Roberts doing something and I'm like, you know what? What the fuck is she doing? So I was looking at her Instagram mm-hmm. and she had a clip of it that was really funny. And I'm oh. like, oh, okay, maybe, you know, maybe I can do this. So I was expecting it to be just like a Hallmark or like um, a Lifetime Christmas movie, like mm-hmm. really kind of just cheesy and kind of boring and predictable. And it was a little cheesy and it was a little bit predictable because, I mean, it's a rom-com. Right. But they, they, end, they all end the same. But... It was funny. I mean, it's Netflix, so they can say fuck every two seconds if they want to. Right. Yeah, I wanted to watch it after I saw Amanda recommend it on Facebook. That's how I saw about it. Yeah. I wouldn't watch it again, but I don't know if I could make it through it again. Yeah, I don't watch any movies twice, unless it's Secret Window or the Halloween movies. (laughs) But it's got that boy. I don't know who he is because I'm a a grandmother, Hmm. but I think he's Australian. I don't know. Um, I started... Um, October's book club book, mm-hmm. <laughs> Malevolent, mm-hmm. <laughs> on like chapter three. Mm-hmm. Listening to, oh, I listened to the two morbids about the Myrtle's Plantation. Oh, I've and, a, I'm, uh, I'm very behind. And the Dybbuk box. That one will freak you out. Okay. And I listened to those the other day because I was, I was trying to like gear up for Halloween and listen to some creepy shit. So that's yeah. about it. Okay, and of course we have to say thank you to all of our lovely Patreons, Kat, Chloe, Angela, Autumn, Crystal, Dee, Tara, Jen, Katie, Chastity, Juan, Maggie, Katie, Leslie, Christina, and Jessica. Thank you, lovely little Patreons. Thank you, guys. And if any of you Patreons missed any of the Spooky Season episodes... You can, once you're a patron, you can go back for however long. Mm-hmm. And even, like, let's say, I don't know, you're listening now and you just found us and you want to become a Patreon. Even though you weren't subscribed when we put those out, if you sign up, you're able to listen to the entire backlog. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool. It's all there. And I just discovered, well, you told me to download the Patreon app, but it's so much easier because I am a Patreon of a few different podcasts. 
and it's so much easier. I didn't even think about it. Yeah, about it really the is. App. Mm-hmm. Truly so, yeah. easier. Yeah. So get the app if you don't have it. It makes it a lot easier to listen to everything and find it all. Yes. Okay, guys. You can email us at cruelandunusualthepod at gmail.com. You can go to cruelinkmedia.com to see our merch, to see the Patreon wall, to see our show notes and our sources and stuff about our books. Cruelinkmedia.com. I tweet at cruel unusual pod you can look at our instagram page at cruel and unusual the pod and come join our facebook group that is cruel and unusual colon the group i hope that you enjoyed the listener scented stories today These listener scented they smelled just like you love you How cute bye love you bye